Okay. Okay. Thoughts, questions, complaints. Jonah, would you be so kind as to be the second mic guy? Thank you, sir. And there's blankets, right? There's blankets if you need blankets. We have a blanket ministry. I woke up this morning and said, it's sweater weather. Dude, fall is my favorite time of the year. Okay, questions, um, thoughts, complaints, observations, riddles. Donna in the back. I don't know if I should even say this. It's not on. Um, I, I didn't ever think about Jesus being weak. So when you said, as a man, he was weak, hmm. I guess it kind of hit me. No, Jesus was hungry at times. Jesus, I mean, think about, just think about the sleep. Because God says in the, in, the, in the Psalter, he is not like us. He doesn't rest or sleep. God, one of the ways God makes it clear to you and to me that we're not God is that about every 18 hours or so, we lie down on the ground, prone and, and helpless, and are unconscious for about eight hours. That's one of the ways God distinguishes himself from us, lest we start getting too important. It's like, no, every now and then, by every now and then, I mean about every 16, 18 hours, I need to go unconscious, defenseless, helpless, and prostrate somewhere. That, that's what I need to do because I'm not God. And Jesus grew tired and had to sleep. He's asleep in the boat. He's weird. No, he's really, he has a real human body, real muscles that haven't eaten food. He hasn't eaten food since the night before. I don't imagine the Romans are saying, well, you know, he's such a nice chap. Let's give him something to help him carry the cross. I, I think the implication is he's unable to do it without assistance. Um, and so as I'm sitting there, like, why does Luke tell us this? I think he's trying to communicate just how weak and weakened he is. I mean, he's not slept all night. He's been mocked and slapped and hit and spit upon and, and humiliated. He's endured six trials. And now he's walking in the hot Middle Eastern sun um, down a road, almost um, um, just beaten to a pulp. Yeah, he's exhausted. He really is. And, and that's... I think Luke's point in, in showing us this. And, and yeah, I think it's good because we tend to think of Jesus as so strong. And there's a strength, a spiritual strength that's absolutely present. But he's a human. He really is a human. He became like us in every respect, yet without sin. And so he grew weak and he needed help to carry the cross. And, that, and the other point I was trying to make is in light of, and that's even after the Father strengthened him. So don't think just because God strengthened you, it's not going to be grueling. That's what you said, too. Yeah. That um, he gives us the strength, but doesn't mean our trials are going to be good. So that's kind of like Jesus is an example of that, right? Absolutely. Okay. Here is one in whom the Father takes perfect delight, one whom we know the Father strengthened, and yet, what's the outcome? Jesus isn't just, I could take eight crosses. You know, he's, that, that's not what the result of being strengthened it looks like 
what it means is he didn't falter from his course. We, we see in Jesus no hesitation. We see in Jesus he's this weak and yet he's counseling these weeping women. He's this weak and he's going to reach out to the, to the thief on the cross and, and bring salvation to him. I mean, that's, that's Jesus being faithful and that's Jesus being strengthened. Jesus' body is crying out for a rest and for food and probably for sleep. Um, yeah. Carol. just uh, tacking on to that but we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we you already uh, alluded to the uh, falling asleep in the boat you know I mean he's he's taught all day the crowds pressed on him so much that they had to move out to a boat and then across going across the storm is so bad the boats filling up with water the disciples are going crazy, and he is asleep. I mean, have you ever been that tired? I mean, I, yeah. maybe we all have, but um, so there's whatever it is, even if it's just a sheer exhaustion, Jesus yeah. understands that too. Yeah. We have a high priest who can sympathize. If you feel absolutely exhausted, like you can't go another step, here it is. Me, me too, right? Um, Siobhan then Greg in Hebrews 5.8 kind of goes along that line where it says in let's see where to go although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered, and I don't—is that word "learned" actually? Oh yeah, learned. Yeah. Well, it, the incarnation gives Jesus a, a context in which to learn by doing things he'd never done before, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not as though Jesus was rebellious and he had to learn to be. It's the actual doing of another's will in this case that he's learning, he's doing. But but Luke too has no problem saying the child grew in stature and wisdom with man and with God, in favor with man and with God. Jesus learned. He, I mean, he's not. He doesn't. I mean, you've got medieval paintings of Jesus just out of the womb, you know, his fingers up, talking and teaching, and a halo around his head. That, that is not <laughs> what we see in the Gospels. He's human. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. Um, and so, yeah, he learned obedience to the things he suffered. Now, we, with all of these things, we want to mean now that doesn't mean that he was imperfect or he was flawed, but no, I mean, he, he learned obedience. He learned through suffering. I mean, prior to the incarnation, did the son ever suffer? So the type of obedience we're talking about, suffering, enduring, he had no experience of that. He learned about it firsthand. And that's what I think the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's not he was a disobedient person, but now he's learned differently. No, he always delights to the Father's will, but there's never been a context of pain and suffering in which for him to do. So he learns through experience, obeying the Father through suffering and through um, endurance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right on the money with that. Anything more? Is that Greg?
I didn't expect Ryan to lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, it's on. For those of you driving, Greg is up and he's got a chair in his hands. And Ryan, sorry. I was impressed this morning, uh, I guess, the connection between the resurrection and those who come to the discussion of their own personal obligation and how if God didn't spare Jesus, if he couldn't find a way around sparing Jesus, he's not going to find a way around sparing me right. if I don't uh, believe in Jesus. And, right. and, so, and, and everybody we speak to, virtually everybody, thinks what you said, which is, well, I'm, I'm not perfect, but right. I, I think on the scale I'll be okay. And, and, of course, the answer to that is, I don't think so, because God, in fact, had to kill his own son uh, in order to satisfy justice. Yeah. Yeah, I heard, a, I heard an analogy once. It, like all analogies, it's, it fails at some points. But so imagine um, somebody, somebody, uh, somebody's son saves your son from drowning, but in the process they die. And afterwards you go up to them and you say, man, I am so thankful for what your son did and I'm so sorry that he had to die. Here's 750 I got on me in my pocket. Um, I'm sure I can scratch up five more bucks and change in the car, ashtray, but th- I just want to let you know. I mean, there's an insult to it, right? I mean, God gives his son, he dies, and we say, no, no, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. I don't, here, here's my medical waste because... Literally, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy garments. They're talking about menstrual rags, things that we'd put in a medical waste basket. That's what I've got, God. <laughs> Thank you for sending Jesus, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite good on my own. Thank you. Here you go. <clears throat> and we dump it out. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, that's not going to cut it. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that was the thing that hit me, is Jesus saying, if you're weeping over this, you need to press it further forward because... This is going to ensure you guys are really going to get it. And that's the big takeaway for us is the sinless son of God said, please, if there's any way, let this cut pass. No. But God's just going to look the other way with this guy over here. Okay. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. Linda. Okay, can we discuss <laughs> as they led him away? Mm-hmm. Okay, because you were saying it's your understanding that it was the Pharisees and the group of scribes and such, right? Yeah, per, per, so here's the logic. Pronouns have antecedent nouns, and the only antecedent, the near antecedent, is in verse... Um, is in verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they, they asked, but he delivered over Jesus to their will. So they asked something, they had a will, and if you track that back, the they, back to verse 18, they all cried out together. Who's the they? 
um, verse 13 and 14, Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. That's the them who does all this stuff. So they led him away. Um, they're still acting unified. Obviously, it's not a couple thousand people leading Jesus away, but it's to be seen as them doing it, not the Romans leading him away, which is striking. I mean, why would they be doing it? Well, because they're the ones who really want it done. And so Pilate said, okay. But even that phrase, gave them over to their will and they led him away. Luke wants us to see even there, their hand is still driving the car. Even there, they are the operative will at work. That's that's what I'm saying. So let's okay. well, push, push I, back, Linda. I just had several things that came to mind that would say it wasn't them. Okay. So I don't know. I'm, okay. That's why I said discuss. So, so no, no, no. So what, what, what makes you think it's not them? Okay. So the soldiers were the ones who did the flogging and all the punishment at the request of Pilate, right? So they were basically in charge of him all that time doing the things that were done to him and kind of guarding him and such, right? So You would presume, yes. Okay. So they, the Pharisees and that group of people wouldn't have the authority to grab Simon and say, carry this. Why would he listen to them? He wouldn't be afraid of them and right. say, he could say no to them and just walk away. But if it was the soldiers that, I mean, you just don't picture, I mean, you picture the soldiers grabbing someone from the crowd and saying, do this, and them not arguing with them because they're in charge of, you know, carrying out things. And then, I mean, in the Pharisees, they wouldn't have had any compassion on Jesus. They wouldn't care if he could carry the cross or not. Why would they? They care if it slows. Well, they they are they are worried about this, him being done, this being done before sunset because of the Sabbath. That's why they break the legs of the other guys. So they do care if it's Jesus slowing them down. If it's he's going to need fifteen minutes to catch his breath. We can't. We don't have time for that. Somebody carry it. Which is why the possibility of Simon actually carrying the back half while Jesus is still slavishly working is possible as well. It doesn't have to mean he carried it instead of Jesus. It can mean he helped carry, like he's in the back carrying the back end. That's that's possibly what's going on. But they would have cared about, we know they cared about time, the time that they could have lost. Okay. Um, but they, that group brought this to Rome because they knew that they, you know, they wanted Rome to do their dirty work for them. They because otherwise they didn't even need to do that. They they could have just carried out this and just done it themselves. They wouldn't have come to Rome and wanted them to, you know, give a death sentence. They didn't. Would they wouldn't have wanted it to come yeah. from Rome? They would have just done it, took care of it themselves. Yeah, I I I agree with you. Grammatically, I'm here's okay. Let me see if I can. Grammatically, Luke's the they, I think, has to be their will, the verse before. But it can be through third parties. I mean, I can hire someone to kill somebody, and I killed them. They led him away. Now, I'm quite certain, as you're saying, push comes to shove, actually Romans conscripted people, and Romans are present. But these people are so involved that Luke can stand back and be like, they did it. That's what I'm saying. Luke is framing it as they did this. And grammatically, the they has to, I mean, otherwise what you've got is 
a they in 25, different from a they in 26. He delivered them over to their will, and as they led him, two different things, which would be very strange grammatically. Yeah, yes, Lee. Um, well, and part of it is that uh, the soldiers, as, as you go back to uh, chapter 22, the soldiers that are mocking and beating him, these are temple guards. Yeah. At that point, because at that that's before they went to see Pilate and Herod, mm. so he he'd already been getting roughed up by the Jewish peop- guys. Those those weren't Romans beating him there. In yeah, verse uh, sixty three of twenty two, so I got something here too. Um, we're going to Mark here. Oh, we're going to Mark. Um, let's see. I just and there. Okay, fifteen sixteen. The soldiers took him away, mm-hmm. and this this is after Pilate handed them yeah. over. The soldiers took him away. They dressed him up on purple. They began to acclaim, "Hail, King of the Jews!" They kept beating his head with the reed. They mocked him. They took the purple robe off, put his own garments on. They led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service the mm. passerby. Yeah, it sounds like it's all the Roman soldiers doing yeah, that. Hold, 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 no, but I would say they're in concert. So you could say all of it. The hitman killed the person. Um, so Nathan came to David. You killed Uriah the Hittite. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Well, David did no such thing technically, but he's behind it. They, you can so you go yeah. Go to Acts. Acts. What is it? Three. Uh, I'm not trying to say the Romans aren't at fault. The Romans are to blame. I'm saying Luke wants to highlight Jewish culpability. That, that's all I'm trying to point out. By no means... And the early church throws the blame around on them all. In verse chapter 4, um, 27, 28, for truly in this city... And they, and they see this as all the nations raging. The crucifixion of Jesus is a, is a multinational conspiracy, which they link to Psalm 2 um, in verse 25. They're praying, well, go back to 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So you can, you can rightly blame all the people in that group. Even though Luke highlights Pilate three times, tries to get Jesus off the hook. He still ultimately, it's his call, and he surrenders. He's a coward, and he surrenders, and he's guilty of condemning Jesus. But Luke wants to highlight he didn't want to, which doesn't in any way let him off the hook. Luke's highlighting the, tr- the true reality that the Jews are steamrolling this. The Israel is pressing this to happen. Um, even though, I'm sure, I have no doubt, the Roman soldiers, even though Luke doesn't highlight this, the Roman soldiers are sadistic jerks. They enjoyed it too. So Mark can talk about all the atrocities the Romans did. No contradiction. Luke wants us to see that. So I don't think there's any... I would have no problem with it being Roman soldiers conscripting um, Simon and yet the Jewish people lead him away as the force behind it. You get what I'm saying? So I got, I got no problem. I'm not suggesting Jews, Jewish people are conscripting Simon. Luke's just seeing this whole charade, this whole um, 
this, this whole sentencing as being driven by, the, by, by Israel. I agree. I wasn't trying oh, okay. to make oh. a contradiction, oh, but, no, no, no. but okay. that there were Romans doing these oh, yeah. things. It yeah, wasn't yeah. the Israelites who oh, necessarily yeah. grabbed Simon, no, but no. they were culpable, like you were saying. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We are on the same page. Excellent. Okay. Well, I wasn't trying to say either that it wasn't oh, okay. <laughs> blaming, so I want to make that clear too. But... If you go down further, which we'll get to next week, so then verse 33 says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. Yeah, the Jews crucified, I think we can find the next, the Jews crucified Jesus, they killed Jesus. Through the Romans. Okay, okay. Through the Romans. Right. But, so are you saying that's still the same they then, because the... I'm, I'm just, I'm a guy who studies language and grammar, and I'm telling you grammatically, okay. it's going to be hard to switch the antecedent of a pronoun. Okay. I mean, if I say something like, um, Daniel and I were talking, and I said to him, and I said to him, and he said to me, and I said to him, and halfway through, I'm talking about Jonah, that's going to be odd when you switch your antecedents for your pronouns. It, it can be done. It's possible. I'm just saying the most straightforward grammatical understanding is it's the same them all the way through. Lee. Of course, it's if you look, do a bird's eye view of the situation, you know, this is an occupied town. Yeah. Um, there's going to be Romans all over, and they're going to be making sure that this little party going to Golgotha is not going to get out of hand. So they're going to be escorting them. They will be there, and it's like you say, it's everybody's involved, but it's being driven by the Jewish contingent. Yeah. And, and, and at this point, they're completely in, in concert with one another. So, I mean, they're all taking Jesus there, but to some that, but to some degree, the Jews are, come on, let's go. This, you know, they're, they're involved enough that they can be said to be doing it. And Even also, though Mark can say the Romans are doing it. Yeah, and sure. like you said, they're also looking at the clock in the sense that they've got to have this done by the time the sun goes down. So if right. Jesus is slowing them down, it's like, hey, get this show on the road and keep things rolling. So. But let me, let me clarify, re-clarify. Luke wants us to see that even at this step, the Jews are still involved, and in some respect, we can speak of them as doing it and being culpable for it. It's not as though at some point they hand it off to the Romans, and the, our hands are clean, the Rome does it. No, it, Luke has us still seeing the Jews participating in doing this, and even leading the doing of this from a, from a culpability standpoint. That's what I would say, most clearly. Anyone else want to weigh it? Or does anyone else want to tell me what they're not saying? <laughs> I was just looking over there when you um, pointed out in verse 25 at the end. Yeah. He said he delivered Jesus over to their will. So he's showing their, like our responsibility for it. Everybody right. is. I mean, it's who's guilty of it. Like, Pilate would have let him go if he wasn't a chicken. And yeah. he said, hey, you know, if he stood up to what he said. They are responsible. They're the ones yelling, crucify, crucify. We were, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think he's just showing that it's our guilt, not mm. Roman. I don't think they would have been able to let Barabbas go to the cross instead. Mm. Sarah? Yeah, I was looking over in Acts 3, and it kind of says the same thing. Let's, um, go to Acts, no, let's go to Acts 3. In verse... Uh, 13, it says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. 
but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer, murderer to be released to you. And you yeah, killed and you the killed author of life. life. And God raised from the dead. Yeah, so not, yeah, there's some of the details even showing up more clearly. Pilate wanted to let him go and you killed him. Well, we didn't know such thing. Rome, we, Rome, you did it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he points it back to, yeah, Pilate was there, but it was you who did this. All right. Absolutely. That's Peter's second sermon in Acts. And he's, and again, remember Luke's sequel to Luke is Acts. So Luke's setting it up to explain Peter's sermon. Luke's giving us the, the, the narrative, which when you read Peter, and Peter's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Pilate wants to let him go. You did it. Well, I think that fits and explains why they're in concert with one another. Luke's emphasis in his narrative with the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts in the early chapters. Excellent point, Sarah. Thank you. Um, oh, all the way in the back. Mrs. Moore. Um, I was wondering, Jeremy, if the context of this in light of fall on us mm. in the future, yeah. um, if Revelation 6.16 sort of sheds light on the they being all those who were unbelievers? It, no, certainly. The, the, uh, in fact, in the notes you saw I had that reference. Um, quite possibly. One okay. of the things that's difficult in trying to understand biblical prophecy is understanding the role 70 AD takes. On the one hand, 70 AD looks so significant with some of Jesus' predictions, not a stone to be left on top of itself. And yet we know books of the Bible are written after 70 A.D., like Revelation was written in or 90-something A.D. And so the fact that the New Testament makes no reference directly to 70 A.D. and the books written afterwards don't say, yeah, exactly like Jesus said, it is really hard, difficult to estimate the, the, rightly the importance or the unimportance of 70 A.D. Um, so I, I don't know whether Jesus is speaking... The part of it makes me think 70 AD is Jesus saying, for you, weep for yourselves and your children, which if you take in the most literal sense would be that generation, right, and, and the next generation, which certainly that would have to mean we're talking about 70 AD. Or the yourselves and your children, these daughters of Jerusalem and the daughters of Jerusalem's children, Jerusalemites, you know, in other words, which could certainly then, which is why we went to Zechariah, the events of Zechariah would sync up perfectly with what's going on there. Except in Revelation 6, it's the rest of the world crying out, deliver us from the Son of Man. So it, it's challenging to fit all that together, which is why I went to Zechariah rather than that, because, yes, it's the woes upon those who reject. And Israel is going to be the first ones to experience that. The rest of the world who rejects him will also receive that same judgment. So, yeah, whether, it's, whether he's speaking near... Or the other possibility is frequently in the scriptures, long, big long-term prophecies get immediate short signs. So like for instance, um, right after Zechariah's prophecy, you've got Antiochus Epiphanes in the Maccabean revolt, setting up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies and slaughtering a pig on it, right? That sure sounds an awful lot like what Daniel's talking about. Yet clearly what Daniel's talking about has future, if you go read Daniel 7, um, 
has things that won't really be. So we're looking for an antichrist who's really going to build a temple. But so this prophecy gets made, and in the very within a generation or so, in the near future, something takes place that looks an awful lot like it. But there's ultimately a long-term fulfillment that's coming. You get the same thing with Hezekiah. He wants uh, more life. And there's what sign we give him. His shadow goes backwards. Or even the virgin will conceive. If you read that in Isaiah in its context, there is what he's really saying is the young woman who's just getting pregnant now, these things will come to pass before the child she bears will know to separate the left from the right and the good from the bad, which is really to say four or five years tops. These things will happen then four or five years. Then we find out, no, that's actually talking about the virgin she'll conceive and the virgin birth of Mary. So it's also possible that the Jesus' prediction of the future assault on Jerusalem gets an immediate and near partial... These, that's where these things get, get tricksy, which is why I didn't ultimately land on it. What's clear, watch out, bad times are heading your way. Because you've rejected me, your destruction and the wrath poured upon you will be so severe, they're going to bless people who don't have kids. How lucky are they, right? That, that's what we know for sure. We definitely know for sure that Israel and the Jewish nation had a hard time in 780, and throughout history, they've had a hard time. And we know from Zechariah, it's going to be hard in the future. And we know eventually that they will repent, believe, and, and, and come to receive their Messiah. So I, beyond that, I don't know which of those references Jesus is pointing to. So, which is a long roundabout way of saying, to your question with Revelation 6, maybe. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Sorry. Oh, Deb. Yeah, going further with the maybe. Um, I read, when we read 30, uh, Luke twenty three thirty one. for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And all week I've sort of been mulling over how much of what we're reading is now, you know, we're studying in Zechariah and Luke, is pertaining to the Israelites, and how much is the general world and and the larger, farther down the road prophecies. And what I thought of was I saw California burning, (laughs) <laughs> you know, it does that every couple of years. Well, it's even, evidently, it's even more. The fire yeah. season is now all year long, wow. evidently. And on the hurricanes and yeah. the tornadoes that come out of it, there never were tornadoes out of it when I was a kid. Right. And stuff that are natural disasters on the U.S. Yeah. of A. And how much of that is judgment on unbelievers or... Is it just going to be birth pangs, or is it not pertaining to us because we're not Israelites, but the Gentiles are going to suffer? And how does that all fit together? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know. Um, let, me, let me take you to one thing. Whenever we see calamity like this, um, go to Luke is it 13. Um, whenever these things happen, yeah, 13. Jesus tells us one thing to interpret from it, at least. And this is what makes it difficult, right? Because like, let's just take something like disease. So um, the disciples say, who sinned, this man or his father, that he's born blind? Jesus, neither. But in other cases, we know, we read this morning, 
people were taking communion lightly and God was killing them and some of them are sick. So how do I tell the difference between the sickness that is brought on as discipline from sin and the sin, that, the sickness that is not and is simply for the glory of God? I don't know, right? Which is why James says, if the sick person himself calls on the elders, you lay hands on them, he confesses his sins, and the prayer of faith will raise him up. Like the only person who has any idea whether or not this person's sickness is from God for sin or not is that person. Um, I'm not to judge that. So when I look at calamities and fires, okay, is this God's judgment on California because they passed this bill? Maybe. Is this just the consequence of living in a God-cursed fallen world? Maybe. Is something else special going on? I don't know. So part of the difficulty is knowing and separating those things, and I don't think we're necessarily called to. So in in Luke 13, they tell Jesus about two events. One's a natural evil, natural disaster. The other is human evil. Um, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. So here's human evil, right? Their worship's profaned. Um, Somebody has mingled human blood with the sacrifice blood in the temple and presumably done so intentionally to rub it in their faces. These people are killed in a gruesome way and dishonored, and the entire temple worship is dishonored and mocked in the same act. This is part of the reason I'm saying Pilate is a godless pagan. He does not fear God or man. He's not a good guy. And so Jesus, what what do we make of this, Jesus? And maybe the temptation is, okay, they must have done something to really anger God. Do you think that those Galileans are worse sinners than all of other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then they give him a natural disaster, right? Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. A piece of architecture gave way. You know, we read about bridges collapsing, right? Um, this, is, this is not human evil unless, unless it was sabotaged. <laughs> The most natural reading of this is natural disaster. What do we make of that? Are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the very first thing we need to see when we see fires and fire, I saw a video of a fire tornado, whatever, is I deserve that and worse. That's the first thing we should conclude. And this is, instead of why do good, bad things happen to good people, we should realize these are the reminders of the things you and I deserve constantly. And so whenever we hear about death, sickness, destruction, it's a call to repent on us. It's a call for us to repent. Beyond that, I think it takes a lot of wisdom to know. Um, a lot of, especially with the second coming and eschatology, I tend to think that until it's actually happening, people aren't really going to be able to know with any certainty it's happening. Or to put it another way, if you look through church history, there have been a lot of people who think they're seeing it. Oh, it's happening. It, it isn't. Which isn't to say stop doing it. I, I, I suspect to some degree the vagueness of it is intentional because we're supposed to live constantly ready. And so one of the results of the signs of these birth pangs being... Um, able to be confused that someone might think they're seeing it is it keeps a spirit of readiness uh, going that otherwise might not be there. Not that God's trying to deceive us, but they're vague enough. They're non-specific enough 
that the church generation after generation might, this might, it might be happening. No, okay. And that type of readiness keeping us going. So I I don't, I don't know what to make of things. And I think trying to figure out God, there have been other preachers who've taught, this is God's judgment. (sighs) I don't have the wisdom to make such pronouncements unless God does. Um, We know he can and does judge sin in nations. And we know sometimes things happen not because of any particular sin, because God's got a purpose in it. And I, without him telling me what he's up to, I think um, speculating. There is one, there's actually one place in the Bible. Go to Philemon. There's actually, if you want warrant, is there any value at all in trying to guess what God's up to? There's one passage I'm aware of that gives any warrant for guessing what God is doing. But even Paul is really speculative about it, which is where I get the measuring measuring line. You know, sometimes when things line up, um, what we call serendipity, um, and, and we're like, huh, this is odd. I needed this, and I prayed for it, and here it happened. So Paul, verse 15 of Philemon. You don't need to give the chapter because there's only one chapter. Um, so Paul is looking at a freed slave not free, a runaway slave who's become a Christian. He's sending back to his Christian master. And Paul says this in verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. In other words, he's saying, Philemon, perhaps this is why this played out the way it is. So you could receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. The the Spirit-inspired Apostle Paul says, Perhaps, which is why when people are like, I know what God's doing, God is the cause and a lot, like, you've got more knowledge and confidence than Paul, my friend, so I'm going to stay over here. So, so that gives at least some warrant for like, and I'll do this, like, maybe this is working out this way. When, I'll give you, she's not in here, so I can tell a story about my wife. Um, oh, she is in here. <laughs> Nothing, dear. <laughs> no, it's a good story. But no. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a quick story. Quick story about my wife. Um, when I met her, the first, see, Serena and I met, we had one overlapping semester at college. Then she went to Israel for a semester. Then she went and taught in Honduras for a year. And then she came back. So, so I met her, and we weren't even friends. The only reason I actually got to meet Serena at all was because she was, she, she was friends with Daniel, and she didn't feel comfortable eating with Daniel because he was married at the lunch table if it was just him. But if he was sitting with me and eating, she'd join us. So, so Daniel was providing service um, even back then. No, because Daniel was a married student, and she didn't want to sit one-on-one with a married guy. But she thought he was interesting and, and you know, like chatting with him. And so basically, I was the tax she'd pay. She'd put up with me. <laughs> Now, I very quickly came to the conclusion, seriously, not, it, wasn't, it wasn't even like an emotional like head-over-heels thing. It was just, I think I could marry that girl. I mean, I'm, I'm a unique enough personality that I, when I saw somebody who was neither afraid of me nor let me steamroll them, um, that I was like, okay. So I thought that early on, so, so much so that I was trying to get to know her better because we weren't good enough friends. It would seem very weird for us to do anything one-on-one. So I'd see her. Um, with interact with Daniel and stuff and some other occasions, other places. And so I'm trying to actually get to know her, just thinking, hey, um, I'd probably be a good idea to get to know this girl better. And it didn't work out. She went off to Israel for a semester. When she came back from Israel, I 
trying to... Anyway, and then she disappears. I just don't think about her again. I was like, oh, that's a shame. That girl seemed like she was worth getting to know. So when God gets a hold of me that summer, and I start listening to some Al Mohler sermons on the priority of marriage, and I start getting convicted about how I haven't taken preparing for marriage seriously, and like, man... So I then start, who's the only, I only know one girl who's even, um, who's, who's marriageable. I, I don't have any interest in it. She's married to a friend of mine. No, she was, she's a godly girl, a godly young woman. Like, well, maybe I should get to know her better and see if the Lord puts any desire in my heart or whatever. But if I'm going to be, so I'm, I'm in the school bookstore with her when Serena walks in out of nowhere and says, Jeremy Kidder, I was looking for you. And I go, perhaps the Lord is up to something. <laughs> But part of that was me trying to not look eight steps ahead. It was like, okay, Lord, <laughs> just, just keep my head down. Next step, next step, next step. And it turns out he was up to something. And after the fact, I can say with great confidence, God was bringing my wife to me. In the moment, like Paul, perhaps. <laughs> and so Paul's a good reminder. There's a sense in which if you want to try to God, are you up to something? But if the Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, who's been taken up to the third heaven doesn't feel more comfortable than saying perhaps, then preachers talking about they know what God's up to with judgments need to back down. So that's, that's uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the things we can get from Philemon. Five minutes. Going once. Oh! had this post-it note in my Bible for about a month. Oh, okay. doesn't have anything to do with today, but it's... <laughs> he, yes, Hebrews 6. I need a word with seven letters that starts with a... T- no. Okay, okay. He- Hebrews chapter 6, yeah. verses 17 through 18, and it says... Uh, well, I'll start at 16. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, plus, and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, which is weird, what else, where else could he lie? But anyway, we who have fled to take hope of the hope offered us may be greatly encouraged. So what are the two unchangeable things that God swore an oath by. That's a good question. Yeah. I thought you were going to point out, here's something God can't do. There's a couple, there's a lot of things I can tell you God can't do. He can't deny himself. Yeah. He can't change. He can't lie. Mm-hmm. No, when we, no, I'm just pause. I'll take the easy one that I know the answer to, Lee, because I'm stalling for time. Um, <laughs> I'm going to run out the clock. Um, <laughs> sports reference, Greg. And, uh, and. I'm sure. When we say God can do anything, what we mean to say is God can do anything he wants to do. God does not claim, like, God never would want to lie, but his nature, everything, even God is subject to what we would call the law of identity. It must be what it is. He can't be other than what it is. God is holy. He can't not be holy. God is truth. He cannot lie. God is righteous. He cannot do what is wicked. He never would want to, so there's never any frustrated desire. But like God can't make two plus two equal peanut butter. You know what I mean? It, you can't just take any illogical, irrational 
collection of words and put God can in front of it and suddenly invest it with meaning. It, it doesn't work that way. God can accomplish all of his will. God can do anything he pleases. God is powerful to fulfill and accomplish everything he desires. And we get some idea when we look at the universe of how big that is and how much power he has. But you can't, this, I mean, I'm just quoting, I'm parroting off C.S. Lewis here when I say you can't just take any bunch of words, put God can in front of it, and suddenly they mean something. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. What are the two unchangeable things? I haven't taught through Hebrews lately, so I'm not sure. You should ask Dave Lample. Yeah, there you go. God can't destroy the world again with a flood. Or any promise he's made in Scripture. Yeah. He can't not do. Excellent. Okay. What? Okay, Serena. For God, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, that, that reminds me. Anyone here seen I, Claudius? John Hurt plays, um, plays uh, Caligula, who believes he's Zeus. And so instead of saying, everyone else is saying, by Jove, he says, by me. <laughs> well, God actually yeah, yeah. does that. Yeah. God has no one greater to swear by, so he swears by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. So I think Serena's, I'll take Serena's answer. He swears by himself, that's one thing, and the oath itself. So you swear an oath by something. He swears the oath by himself. And the oath itself is supposed to be a dispute and ender of all things. So we've got two things. God gave his promise, and God gave his promise according to his himself, his character. But you can ask Lample, who's just recently taught through Hebrews, if, if that's what he thinks. But thanks, dear. Look at that. Helper suitable people. Helper suitable. And on that note, we will end our time. Thank you.